This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, September the 3rd, 2022. It's Labor Day weekend. The summer has just flown by, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're with us today. You know, I encourage you to have your Bible as we look into Scripture together, and perhaps also print out the study notes that are posted on our website at trinityvale.com. Now, we have entered the New Testament book of Colossians, and if you missed the last two weeks, don't be discouraged. I encourage you to go back and listen to those, or maybe to do a little quicker, um, I've mentioned this from time to time, but I post my raw message notes, right, what I preach from, again, on the church website, trinityville.com, go to the Watch and Listen tab, you can get those PDFs, PDFs there, read through my notes, um, I don't clean those up um, for anybody other than myself, but Pretty much everything that I say is there. So you can go check those out as well. Okay? Yes, before we jump in, I want to encourage you to, to take time in the coming week to read the book of Colossians in its entirety, maybe multiple times over the coming weeks. You know, it's short. It won't take you long to do it. And it'll help you give get this overall sense of context, a larger picture to have in mind as we go through this book, this amazing book, in some detail. Okay. Was last week we began the text with Paul's introduction. I'm going to start with this again, and then I'm going to go right through today's text, which is verses 3 through 8. And we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now picking up in verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. For you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told you of your love, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Okay, all right. As Paul begins this letter proper, by giving thanks, by expressing gratitude. And what he's doing, he's thanking God for the firm foundation upon which this young church was built. What we see, uh, what we see here is that an essential part of that foundation was prayer and gratitude itself. So again, Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You know, just a quick aside here, guys, a thing you'll discover if you study the New Testament with an in-depth commentary, I know not many people do that, but it can be a really wonderful thing to do. In fact, if you thought you'd like to do that, but you don't know where to begin, shoot me an email, give me a call. I can give you some recommendations specifically for the book of Colossians here. But anyway, if you do this kind of like in-depth reading and study at times, what you'll, a thing that you'll see is that the Greek word order can sometimes be quite confusing. Confusing. And even scholars who devote their lives to doing these translations can disagree about how these sentences are structured. 
Right? For example, from this passage, what we just read is from the New International Version. And what they do is associate the word always with thanking God. They say we always thank God when we pray for you. But it can be argued that a better translation is what we see in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, where what Paul is always doing is praying. The NASB does it, renders it this way. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. All right, so there the sense is we are always praying, and in this prayer, we thank God for you. Okay, here's why that's important. Now, see... Paul says, when Paul says that they are always praying, you know, he doesn't mean that he's walking around 24-7 or all of his waking hours in this constant, like conscious, devoted state of prayer. No, what he likely means is that prayer was a purposeful and consistent practice. And this is what he's teaching as well. Daily, likely multiple times a day. You see, for Paul, prayer is not haphazard. I'm sure it could have been spontaneous at times, but it was purposeful. And this practice of regular prayer gives rise to his heart of gratitude, right? his recognition and thanksgiving for what God is doing. You see, too often we can think of prayer as just bringing our list of requests to God. And God does invite us to do this. But much more, prayer is an intentional act of pushing aside distractions, focusing our hearts, and in an attitude of worship and reverence, opening our minds and our hearts to God. And friends, when we do this, right, when we pray with a yielded openness to God, not just what we say to him, but to him, but what, what, what he would say to us. Friends, the Spirit will work in those times so that our prayer itself will be directed by God. And a primary way that the Spirit will lead us to sincerely pray will be with gratitude. So Paul now goes on and describes why he is so thankful, right? what, what has been called to mind in prayer. And it's how he sees in these young believers the presence of three essential ingredients for a healthy church. And these ingredients are faith, love, and hope. Picking up in verse 4 again, he says, We always thank God, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring, like that spring up from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Okay, first, says, Paul is thankful for the church's faith in Christ. And of course, that is where it begins. These believers had heard the simple truth of the gospel, what Jesus had accomplished through the cross, why he had done this, and what it meant for them. And they responded to this gospel with the yielded devotion to God. But their faith wasn't just about believing in God. Here's a key thought, and several, several scholars have brought this up. If you look throughout the New Testament and how Paul talks about faith, what we will see is a picture of both faith in God and a recognition that there are things that are true about God. All right, let me restate that. Faith in Paul's meaning is both a yielded devotion to God and a yielded belief in what is true about God. You know, years ago, I was talking to a couple who visited, where they were visiting our Beaver Creek service, and they said something like, you know, Pastor Ethan, we believe in God. We just don't believe in a lot of the things that the Bible says. Now, you know, it struck me that at least they were being really honest. 
And honestly, I mean, there are some traditional interpretations of Scripture that I myself would really challenge. But if what we believe about God is not rooted in God's revelation of himself to us, which of course he's done through biblically, through creation, through Christ, and authoritatively through Scripture, through his word, then our concept of God is just going to be that, our concept of God on our terms, and it's easily changeable and importantly here for Colossians, easily manipulated. You see, this gets to the heart of this letter. False teachers are challenging the Colossian believers' understanding of what was true, and they're trying to diminish who Jesus is and elevate things that they had to do in addition to their faith. And Paul responds by saying that not only is your faith and hope in Christ, but there are essential truths that we believe about Christ who he is, what he has done, and who we are as a result, what is true of us as a result. And so Paul thanks God for the Colossians' faith in Christ. And going on, he thanks them for the love that they have for all God's people, for each other, the love that was evident within the community of faith. And church, (laughs) this simply cannot be overstated. One of my commentaries that I'm going to be referencing throughout this study is by N.T. Wright. Um, And in his comments on this section, on this statement, he asserts that love within the community of faith, love within the community of faith, where there was no loving community before, that this is the sure evidence that that faith is genuine and that God's grace is at work. Think of this. If you ask the New Testament, including everything Jesus said in the Gospels, what is the distinguishing mark, what is the distinguishing attribute of believers as as individuals, but even more as Christ followers who are part of a vital community of faith, the resounding answer will be how we love one another. And then how this love leads us into a spirit of unity and harmony And then in turn, how we express this to the world around us. See, through Colossians, we see Paul give great praise to this family of believers. But the thing he marvels at the most, right, these believers being so young in their faith, is their love. You know, friends, today, if we were to ask, what is it that distinguishes Christians from the world around us, or even more so, If we were to ask the world around us, what are the most distinguishing things about people who say they're Christians? You know, lots of things, lots of answers could be given. You know, things such maybe, well, it's our music. And I guess in some places, maybe the way we dress, you know, our church culture, all these things that we do. They also might talk about our politics, maybe our moral stances. And these all can be important. Well, parenthetically, I'll say in some cases, maybe less important than we think. But at best, they were all secondary to the great distinguishing mark of the church, right? God's mark upon us, what God created and intends for his church, which is how we love one another in the community around us. Now, if you hear me say that, and you maybe ask the question, well, what does that look like? Right? How do we wrestle with right? how we make sense of that and you know, all these different issues we have in life and culture and the church and so on and so forth? I would encourage you to go back and listen to the three-week series, the brief three-week series that I did back in July, because that's what we really got into. What does the love of God look like in the reality and the complexity of life as it really is? But now, moving on, 
Paul continues and he says that this love that defines the Colossian believers isn't just something they are manufacturing on their own. No, it has a source. And the source of this love, the source of their faith, but also, and really the Greek emphasizes the source of their love, is their hope. Paul says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Now, again, in the Greek, the emphasis is that it is love that springs up. Faith and love. The NIV says the faith and love, but really the emphasis is on that their love springs up. It arises from. It is the inevitable result of their hope. And when he says hope, he's talking about a very specific hope. See, in verse 5, we saw that the source of this love is the community's hope of resurrection. Of resurrection. And my friends, resurrection is the great hope of all Christian theology and all New Testament teaching. So when we initially often think of, when we think about resurrection, right, this great hope stored up for us in heaven is that um, we think of our future resurrection, right, the hope that these fragile bodies of ours will one day be made new in the new life of eternity, of eternity that we will experience total resurrection physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, total resurrection in all of who we are, right? This is the resurrection future. But we also remember that our future resurrection is possible because of Jesus's past resurrection from the dead, right? That historic event. But even more, and this is what Paul is going to strongly emphasize throughout the, the, this little letter of Colossians. Friends, spiritually, we have already been raised. We have already been raised with Christ. And the new life of our future has actually already begun. As Jesus said in John's gospel, we now have the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, a new identity as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come because it's already here. And so when Paul says that our faith and love spring up from the hope stored up for, uh, for us in heaven, this points us to this, this amazing thought of the believer's future resurrection that's made possible through Jesus's past resurrection and is experienced now in the reality of our present resurrection. You see, as disciples of Jesus and as a community of believers, the hope of resurrection, our hope of resurrection exists in all three tenses. It has redeemed our past, brought life into our present, and secured our future. And my friends, that is hope. And when we consider how this hope was given to us when we didn't deserve it, right? The miracle of God's loving grace to extend us, to come to us, to bring us into this. When, when all we had was our brokenness, and we, when we think of this and consider this in relationship to the people in the world around us, my friends, this will be a wellspring of a, within our hearts, a wellspring of faithfulness to God and love for others, just as God loves us. 
And now moving on, Paul, Paul says this, he continues. He says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And then going on here about halfway through verse five, he says, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. Truth that you've already heard. Okay, friends, if you get my first tracks, um, devotional emails that I send out every week or so, and you've read it this week, I just sent it out today, I'm actually recording this on Saturday, you you perhaps read what I'm about to walk us through. Friends, there's something obvious here in what Paul just said, but it's incredibly important and it's easy to miss. He says, this true message of the gospel— which was spreading and growing in a way perhaps never again seen in the entire history of Christianity. This message was something these believers had already heard. And we may think, well, of of course it was. Because think of the implication here. If Paul wrote Colossians from Rome in AD 62, give or take, and that's the that kind of the traditional prevailing view, then that means that the churches of Asia Minor, Colossians in that surrounding region, the Lycus Valley, that they were around 10 years old. But as we discovered last week, a good case can be made that Paul wrote Colossians from Ephesus around the year 55, give or take, making the Colossian church in that scenario barely a few years old, if not younger. But either way, my point is that the gospel message was brand spanking new. It had precious little cultural or even doctrinal or theological development. It was essential. It was bare bones. Sometimes even said people have referred to it as being primitive. You see, based on our best understanding of when the New Testament books were written, think for just a minute what this true message of the gospel didn't include. Well, it didn't have all the different doctrines about baptism, communion, and all these things that like divide and define our denominations today. I mean, you make a list of virtually all of these issues, and you looked back into where these believers were, and these arguments weren't even on the radar. Another one, (laughs) this early essential gospel did not include the book of Revelation. There was nothing remotely approaching the vast millennial-based constructs of modern end-times theology. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with that, but it was not part of this essential gospel. You know, in this predominantly Gentile churches of Asia Minor, there was very little understanding of the Old Testament and how it then relates to the New Testament. And and this one to me is important. There was very little development of a distinct, independent Christian culture except, of course, for the basic but essential moral contrast of their spirit-led lives. And Paul's going to talk about that as we go on. You see, if we brought this into into today's world, this would have been a scenario where there would have been no Christian radio stations, no Christian music, no Christian professional musicians, no concerts, no movies, no books, no Christian publishing industry, no Christian leadership conferences. I mean, you name it. In fact, there was only a small portion of the New Testament. We also see that the church at this time had very little in the way of financial or physical resources, right? That was not part of how the gospel was being, was being propagated across the world. And the idea of central facility-based churches with trained professional staff, I mean, that was centuries away. 
There was also, I mean, the idea of the ability to access Christian teaching apart from participation, right? Being there, active, familial participation in a small local church community, that didn't exist. And friends, I think crucially, importantly, there was virtually zero concept of political influence as a mean to advance the gospel and bring about cultural change. Okay, here's where I'm going. Friends, if you look at the opening lines of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this was written around AD 56 probably, very close to when Paul wrote Colossians. In, that, in, that, in the opening lines there, again, 1 Corinthians 15, you can go read it. Paul declares that the essential and true gospel message, that this was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through which men and women by faith may receive forgiveness, new life, and be reconciled to God. That's it. That's the gospel. It's essential, nothing extra. Again, almost primitive. And yet, this primitive and true gospel transformed the worlds of its time. My friends, the totality of Scripture, of course, is a gift from God and important beyond our ability to fully comprehend and understand. In fact, that's why here at Trinity, we hold a very high view of Scripture and we consistently delve into its riches even, maybe especially, when it really challenges us. Likewise, there are many things within today's Christian culture that are wonderful and powerfully used by God. But that said, it's worth asking if some of the things that we may consider to be essential parts of being a Christian, maybe even a central part of the Christian message itself, that these might not be as essential as we think. And there may even be things that are excess weight burdening down the radical, transforming, countercultural, attractive, and profoundly simple, true message of the gospel that is evidenced by a community of diverse people of hope who genuinely love one another and genuinely love the world around them. Something to think about. But no, going on. In verse 6, Paul now says, in the same way, right, looking back on everything he just said, in the same way, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. The whole world. Now, just a quick note here. When Paul says the whole world, you know, he doesn't mean the whole world, at least as how we would understand it. What Paul is doing is looking at the world that he knew, which was the Mediterranean Greek-Roman world. And he's reflecting on the miraculous way the simple, essential gospel was spreading throughout that world in a rapid, widespread, geographically unconstrained, and profoundly effective way. You know, sometimes people will look at a single verse in the Bible today, right, in English, from our 21st century perspective and say, I mean, this is what it says, right? Black and white, right here. Ethan, it says the whole world, so it means the whole world. Friends, my point is, Scripture is God's truth to us, and we must read it intelligently, contextually, and humbly. And the example here is an obvious one. But there are times when it's not so obvious, but it is every bit as important. Okay, moving on. Paul now completes this thought. He says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, and then starting in the second half of verse 6, he says, Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Wow, what a statement. 
I'm not sure I could say that I truly understand God's grace. But you see, Paul's being very purposeful here. Right at the outset of the letter, he has commended their faith, their love, and their hope. And he now shines a spotlight on something that they had already heard but needed to be reminded was of paramount importance, the fullness and the truth of the grace of God. You see, having just said there that they truly understand God's grace, Paul now is going to spend the rest of the letter reminding them and teaching them just what this grace is. And we see this teaching in all of Paul's letters, but here in Colossians in a very unique and powerful way. You see, Paul is calling these believers, just as God still calls us today, to be a community of Christ followers who place a high value on truly understanding, right? Truly understanding the incredible, essential, life-giving message of the gospel and the grace of God. Okay, our passage ends with this. Verses seven and eight, Paul says, now you learned it, right? You learned the grace of God. You learned this gospel message. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's majestic description of what love is, he makes the famous statement, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Here we see Paul commend the Colossians for living out those very three same essential things, faith, love, and hope. And he's changed the order here, but his emphasis is the same. And we see how the Colossians were known to have love for each other and how this love flowed out of their great hope, stored up for them in heaven, the great hope of the resurrection. And he ends by saying that their love was a result of the Spirit's work in their lives. And my friends, just as this was reported about the Colossians, who lived in a very different time, but in some ways not so different, May this also be said of us. Friends, thank you for being here with me today. Just just a quick footnote. Um, If you downloaded my outline that I have um, on on the website, I have some reflection and discussion questions. I mentioned this last week. And these are an opportunity for you, if if maybe you're by yourself, to reflect on. But if you're listening to this with somebody else, is to spend some time really talking about this passage, going a little deeper into it on your own. Also, as a programming note, I'm not going to be teaching next week. And if you'd like to, you can catch my very good friend, Pastor Greg Messerol, on our Facebook livecast of our Edwards service. And I'll be back the following Sunday on September 18th as we're going to take a look at a very different kind of prayer. Friends, I love you, and I'll see you then.